who would think that speaking on the goodness of God, what was that, a few, like a month ago or so, I don't know, it's blurry time, and then speaking on the love of God, what that can do and how powerful that is. So it's, for me, I, I mentioned when I was talking on the goodness of God that I've been struggling in my preaching, carrying what I'm talking about, and today is no different. So yay. <clears throat> so for those who haven't been around, we've been working through Psalm 23, Dallas Willard's um, Life Without Lack. Um, my voice is shaky, so just bear with me. I'm going to choose to read from the Passion Translation. I love this. Um, so close your eyes, and then I'll read it to you. Just ignore all the wobbles in my voice. The Lord is my best friend and my shepherd. I will always have more than enough. He offers a resting place for me in his luxurious love. His tracks take me to an oasis of peace, the quiet brook of bliss. That is where he restores and revives my life. He opens before me pathways to God's pleasure and leads me along his footsteps of righteousness so that I can bring honor to his name. Lord, even when your path takes me through the valley of deepest darkness, fear will never conquer me, for you already have. You remain close to me and lead me through it all the way. Your authority is my strength and my peace. The comfort of your love takes away my fear. I'll never be lonely for you are near. You become my delicious feast, even when my enemies dare to fight. You anoint me with the fragrance of your Holy Spirit. You give me all I can drink of you until my heart overflows. So why would I fear the future? For your goodness and your love pursues me all the days of my life. Then afterwards, when my life is through, I'll return to your glorious presence to be forever with you. Amen. Don't you love that? So, a few weeks back, we looked at faith. I, I, I looked at um, faith and what that looks like. And we looked at Job, the faith of proprietary, the faith of desperation, and then the faith of sufficiency. And faith grows according to our vision of who God is. And in turn, therefore, grows our ability to become like Jesus or grow like Jesus or be like Jesus. We become increasingly capable of choosing the good and doing the right good works that Jesus has called us to. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Then Gary took us through a very happy time of death to self, like, yay, who wants to talk about that? And he looked at how it's laying down our desires with confidence in God's abundance and goodness. 
because it's not a death of self. It's a death. I feel like I'm, sh I'm having to shout now. Can you hear me? Wow. So when we surrender our desires, our glory, our power, it's the process of becoming <laughs> who we are meant to be in God's family and kingdom. <laughs> Ron's just hysterical. <laughs> wow. Who thinks the enemy doesn't want you, us to hear this? You know, we're on the pathway of following Jesus. Faith is what draws us near to God. Death to self is what positions us and gives us an ability to be these empty vessels so we can receive. And today I'm going to talk about love. So love is the ability to receive God's love and then give it out. All right. And this completes this triangle of sufficiency, of life and abundance that we can live. To be honest, I don't like listening to preachers on love, and I'll explain why. So, you know, you, we all, a lot of weddings will come up and they'll bring 1 Corinthians 13. We all know it. The problem with this kind of topic, it's the same with goodness, is it's so familiar to us, it becomes like a little bit like stale chewing gum. We're kind of like, yeah, heard this before. You know, love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering. Guess what? I always feel that when they start preaching on this, that I need to do more. I'm not enough. I don't, I'm not, okay, I have four kids, so I think I have a little bit more grace than other people who have less. But four kids, I do not have patience with them. I don't have enough patience, let's say that. And in the words of my kids, it's like, I feel like you got to, and they're going to laugh at me, like, do better. Be better. <laughs> this is a whole meme thing I don't even understand. So when we hear what love is, if you were to read all the passages in the Bible on love, you, I, this is me, I'm not going to put that on you, but I kind of come away with going, I'm not enough, I'm deficient, and I certainly can't do that. I don't know about you. You're all looking at me as if I'm nuts. Okay, so it's only me. I'm the only one who feels exposed. Okay, now, we, now we're getting real. So to me, those scriptures feel like in the past are just a revealing of my lack. I'm not loving enough. I'm not patient enough. I'm not kind enough. Blah, blah, blah. But what it does is it keeps me coming back to this truth that I simply can't increase what I don't have. I cannot be more loving on my own. I cannot be more patient in myself. And guess what? I know, and, and if you were here last week, Gary had like a screwdriver and then a power tool. So in ourselves... We can love on people. Hey, we can take that screwdriver and we can do it and try hard. And there's some people who are probably more patient. I think Leisha's probably one of the most patient people I know. And Gary's far more patient than I am with the kids. But eventually we all run out. And we all sit in this deficient. Ugh. But that not that the point? 
Should we be trying harder to love? Okay, so what am I saying here today? What is our aim as followers of Jesus? It isn't to be more kind, more loving, more patient people, but it's actually to be people who are possessed by love. So if you try harder to love someone, you're going to fail. You don't have it. But if you are possessed by the one who is love, you will naturally become a more loving person. So I feel such a, it was an interesting time prepping for this. And Jenna came to me last night. She's like, Mom, this is different for you, this prep. Because I was lying in bed and reading a novel last night. And I think it's because there's a resting that God is putting in me that I don't have to do more. Don't get me wrong. My curiosity, (laughs) I said to Leash, I was like, you know what, I'm going to be, if you all know me, I love reading, right? And so I was like, I'm only going to follow Dallas Willard's stuff, and I'm not going to dig more, and I, I couldn't help myself. And I did, and it was fascinating. But I didn't have to do more to, to, to work through this. There was this, not peace, but almost like this rest. In, I didn't have to do more today. So now we're going to dig into a little bit of some Bible stuffs, because we can't help ourselves, right? In Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites, God showed affection for you, chose you because of his ahava for you. So God doesn't love because the Israelites earned it or deserve it. It simply originates from God's own character. He loves because he loves. This is why Jeremiah can say that God's love is everlasting. It has no end because it has no beginning. God's love just is an eternal fact of the universe. And God's love is not a duty, it's a genuine feeling, an affection that God experiences. This is why the prophet Hosea compares God's love for his people to a husband's ahava for his wife, or to a parent showing ahava for their child. It's one of the strongest things that God feels. But that doesn't mean that God's love is just a feeling. God's love is also in action. It's something God chooses to do. Like when Moses says, because of God's ahava for your ancestors, he brought you out of Egypt with great power. God's love isn't just a sentiment. It is something God does. And so in the Shema, Israel is called to respond to God's ahava by showing ahava in return. And just like God's love, human love is to show itself through actions. Like in Deuteronomy 10, What does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him and serve him and to keep his commands? All of these actions are centered around love. If I'm not doing them, I don't actually love God. I just say I do. Which leads to one last thing. In the Old Testament, I show my love for God by how I treat the people around me. In Deuteronomy, we read that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he shows ahava for the immigrants among you, giving them food and clothing. And so you also show ahava for the immigrant. So the people are to imitate God's ahava by showing ahava for others. This is the idea underneath the famous line, you shall ahava your neighbor as yourself.
And so at the end of the day, all of this is rooted in God's own eternal Ahava. Like we read in the New Testament letter of 1 John, we love because God first loved us. And that's the Hebrew word Ahava. I can just imagine Gary going, Louise, Ahava. Ahava. We can have varying different ways of saying that word, right? Here we stop laughing. So it's deeper than God just loves us. It's the fact that God is love. Okay, so God is Ahava. No, it doesn't work. So the Old Testament worldview on love. There's another word. So unfortunately, in the the English, love is just. English love, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a moment, but there are many words in the Greek and in the Hebrew for, the, for love and def- describing the different kinds of love that we have. So the, there's another word called hasid. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but this is to do with a loving faithfulness. It's loyalty that is established through covenantal relationships. So there's this give and take that happens with this love, and, and um, God expresses his steadfast love. So every time you see the word loving kindness in the Bible, or you see steadfast love, that'll be the word hasid. And it's, it's God is now through covenant placing his loyalty on people that he's chosen because he loves them, and he's therefore faithful. That is what that word Kind of represents, but there's an there's this dual response that happens to this word is that there's an expectation from God's side in our response to that love, and we're going to unpack it. So God's response, expectation, and our response isn't about um, burnt offerings. It isn't about us doing more rituals. I think of that. You know, if you have everything, that First Corinthians thing where it says if you have everything, but if you do anything without love, you're like an, a clanging cymbal and a noisy gong. Those two concepts are kind of linked here. So you can, you can do rituals and be obedient in motion, but it's empty. You're going to be like this clanging, empty, noisy gong. And you can sense it when somebody acts lovingly but it's not sincere, God feels that as well. In Hosea 6, 6, God says he desires from us steadfast love and not sacrifice. That's his heart's desire, is that we, in response, will return his love with just as a much, it's not an emotion, but it's a choice to, re, to respond back to him in love. He wants our hearts, and he wants our hearts to believe who he says he is. He's our one true God, and he wants us to be loyal to him, which actually has to come through in our heart response, but through the way we live our lives. It's called loyalty. Why? Because he's loyal to us. He first loved us. 
So it's an it's expression of how we express our love back to God. It's almost like he mirrors, he pours out his love onto us. We receive it and then we're just pouring it back to him again. See, God is the source of love, but it's not the explanation of who he is, but it's actually the explanation of what love is. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more. So there's this incredible, beautiful thing that starts to happen. So he gives us faith to see him. He initiates. It's his gift to us. We get a glimmer of God and we respond back to him. And then we get, we start to die to self a little bit. And then we get another glimmer of who he is in a better way. And then he pours more of his love out to us. And then we express and our faith deepens and our trust deepens. And we die a little bit more to our selfish ambitions and our own glory and our own power. And then he, he pours more of his love out. And it's this incredible, beautiful cycle of just God pouring out more. Because he goes, oh, you see me a little bit more. Here, I've got more for you. And it's raining again. You see, the thing that we have to remember, God first loved us. So it is exclusive. I read um, a guy, it was a theologian, a, a guy who says he's Christian, and he's part of what they call progressive Christianity. And I said to Gary, I'm astounded that they call themselves Christians. And these guys, and if you listen to their little ramble about what they believe, you're going, oh, okay, you know, you kind of, oh, all right. There's something a little off, but okay. But right at the end, they just slide in this little, it's not little, it's quite huge. They just go, hmm, it's not exclusively through Jesus, Christianity. In other words, all roads do lead to Rome. So if you're a Muslim, you're kind of going to get to God anyway through being a Muslim. And if you're Islamic, you kind of, but Jesus didn't really say, and this guy actually wrote it down in an academic paper, he didn't believe that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he calls himself a Christian. I was like, what? And there's a whole bunch of these people that believe this. But actually, guess what? It is exclusive. Why? Because he chose us. It's his invitation. And the invitation is exclusive. If Gary and I are invited to a wedding, we get an invitation that says, Gary and Louise, you're invited to this wedding. Whoever's inviting us includes us in exclusivity to their event. So we are chosen by God to join his family exclusively to become a part of his family. You are chosen. He chose you. And whenever you hear that somebody's like, they're seeking God, it's always in a response to that invitation or that exclusivity of God choosing them first. There's no backup plan. It's not like God would like... Halfway through, I mean, if you start reading through Genesis, you can get the impression. It was supposed to stop raining today. 
you get the impression that um, God must have gone, oh, Flip, what have I done? These humans. Okay, we better make an adjustment to the plan. If you read it with that lens, that's not biblical. It says Jesus was always the plan from before creation, before the beginning of time. He came to earth as a human, living life in perfect obedience to his Father and dying on the cross, being raised from the dead so that we may live in his righteousness and to be a part of his family. That's the invitation. But that was always plan A. There was never plan A.123. It was always that plan. Because he knows who we are. He knows our failings, our imperfections. And he knows we need Jesus. So God's love is the source of every action that he does. He's deeply motivated by love. His love is also very, it's not impulsive in that, oh, I feel like doing this for you today. It's well thought of, chosen delight in every single one of us. And that's why his expression of love comes through covenant in such a beautiful way. It makes him incredibly faithful. So God is always seeking, always initiating, relating to, and delighting in us. So we come to Jesus because Jesus says a whole bunch of stuff in John. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus is this incredible expression of God's love. In Mark 3.13, now this verse really impacted me because in Matthew, in Luke, and in John, it doesn't mention this particular thing. So Mark is one of the first gospels written. It's the rawest one. It's kind of like... They haven't, he, he's just written it out of this, it's got a lot of raw language. It's very real. And um, this is talking about Jesus. He went up to the mountain. So he didn't just like, you know, when we hear that little sentence, it's Jesus' custom to go up through the night and pray. So this is what they're talking about. He goes up to the mountain to be with God. And he spends the whole night praying on the mountain, it's, remember the biblical language is, is mountaintop talks about a spiritual realm. It talks about Eden. It's talking about temple language. So he's gone to be with his father. And they're having a long chat. Who they're chatting about. Who he wants for himself. They're talking about names. They're talking about people. Hey God, this guy, John, I really dig him. I want him. Can I have him? God's like, sure. What about Matthew? I think he's super cool. Go for it. He's choosing those he himself wanted. And then it says, and then they came to him. Response. And then he goes, then he appointed them, 12, but ignore the number. It's not about the number. That they might be with him. See, we lose sight of the fact that God chooses us so that we must do stuff. You go on mission, 
You got to go and pray for the sick, preach the gospel, have power, cast out demons, blah, blah, blah. And that's very important. Don't get me wrong. But primarily, God chose us because he wants to be with us. So Jesus is God's love in action. He calls those. His primary motivation, his delight is to actually be with us. And Jesus' relational nature perfectly mirrors, reflects God's relational nature and desire for us. Next year, we're going to get into a series called, What Does God Want? Like, what is God's motivation? I'll give you a little teaser. So if I was to ask you, what does God want? What would your answer be? You're not allowed to answer, Paul, you've read the book. What, what does God want? He wants you. That is his primary motivation. For everything that he has done, he wants us. And he demonstrated that through Jesus. From the moment Jesus came onto earth, it was an incredible demonstration of God's love and God's primary motivation of wanting and delighting and choosing us. I'm pressing the wrong button. So Dallas Willard, we got some cool quotes from this guy because he was pretty clever. We can seek the gift of love and receive it as a gift, but we don't have to perform for it. If you walk away from today, let this be the thing that you allow to sink deep into your heart. How can you perform for something that you never even asked for in many ways? He's removed you through the cross, through Jesus. He's removed us from the equation. That's why it's covenant. He made covenant with himself. We weren't a part of that, but we get to receive it, enjoy it, and walk in it. So every time you feel like you need to prove to God that he needs to love you, ah, stop it, it's a lie. Okay, so what is love? It's a very confusing word in English because my kids will go, Mom, I love you and I love pizza. How can they put that in the same bracket? I don't know. So the word love in, in the English language is so vastly used for so many things and variety of different things. It causes a lot of miscommunication and confusion within our hearts and minds when it says God loves you. Well, what does that mean? Does he love Peter as much as he loves me? Come on, there's no. <laughs> Although in my kids, maybe. So every religion has its own version of what love is, and then its own way of promoting well-being, which is another way of saying of promoting love. So there was this guy, his name is Thomas Ord, and he wrote this book called The Science of Love. And I was like, oh, this can be boring, because I mean, how do you, how do you, how? Like, how do you make a scientific way of determining what love is, but actually it's an incredibly interesting book, and it's free, so if anybody wants to read it, I'll send it to you. So his definition of love became this, acting intentionally in sympathetic response to others, including God, to promote overall well-being. So that's his, that out of all the things that he did, that's kind of what he, he came up with. But it still doesn't help. This is a very interesting quote from the book. So he went through all the different world religions, the big ones, the massive ones, the ones that have been here 
from Chinese all the way, well, from the Eastern world all the way to the Western world. He looked at all the, re the religions. And this is his conclusion when it came to Christianity. Christianity's connections with love are arguably stronger. And what distinguishes Christianity is the fact that it is, it alone has made love the dominant principle in all its dogmas or areas of dogma. Whatever Christians may have done to others or themselves, theirs is the only faith in which God and love are the same. I think we're onto something. So, love is. It's not those cute little... <laughs> Remember those stupid little... Uh, I can't even call, remember what it's called. Those little love is, and then there's Cupid angel things that <laughs> Hallmark cards is not love is. So it means to act intentionally. We have to choose. It lies in our area of our will. So the Greek, the Greek word, agape, is that right? Agape, there's no fish involved. which we have kind of reduced, and I say reduced it to like unconditional love, and then that other word, phileo. And you know, it's very interesting that they spell the, all these words differently depending on where you read them. So. so that's more your friendship or brotherly love. What's interesting is the New Testament writers and Jesus use both these words interchangeably. They don't use it like one more than the other, although agape, agape, is used a little bit more, but they kind of swap it around. So the New Testament idea is that it's not seen as an action, even a spe very special intentional action, but it's rather the source of your actions, which makes sense to me. So this is Dallas, Dallas Willard's kind of summary, which I've just, he uses a lot of words, so I've just kind of reduced the words. Love is the readiness to act, in a certain way, under certain conditions, and its orientation is towards abundant life in Jesus and then the well-being of others. Are you ready? But guys, we can't put on love. Like I said before, it's actually pretty impossible for us to do it on our own strength. We don't love more by sheer willpower. You can't like I will do it. I can do it. You can't. Sorry. It's not by direct effort. And what's interesting is that Dallas Willard says that love is separate from or needs to be separated from desire and emotions, although they do play a role. It's not a primary role, emotions and desires and feelings. Because desires, feelings, emotions are impulsive rather than chosen action. So they're different in nature. Selfish ambition and stubborn will, I never had that in my children. I think Jenna's run away. <laughs> they actually resist God and his love. Why? Because it's an element of control. I will. So your only way forward, if you're suffering from selfish ambition and you are suffering from, like, I do it myself, 
is death to self. So this is your surrendering of your desires, your control, and then allowing God to embed his love into your will so that you can choose as you become more loving. So you start to be able to choose love as you receive God's love. And it's this never-ending story. So it's about surrendering. You can't receive if you're not surrendered. So we have to be careful that we don't elevate the nature of love above God himself. Remember, God is the source. But now if we make love the thing, then that leads us into idolatry. God is the only one who we worship, who we love, who we adore. And if you read the Bible, the biblical account, God is incredibly patient with people until idolatry comes onto the scene. And then he just, why? You shall not worship any other. All our natural affections can become rivals to love. Oh, now it's quiet. <laughs> Where's the rain? <laughs> Because it's not the source of our ultimate happiness. So if you're looking for love so that you will find ultimate happiness, it's not going to work. You're going to feel very unsatisfied. And I think most people have experienced that. See, love on a wrong basis, a wrong source, that idolatry can become manipulative, well, it does, and controlling. Because you start... Loving a person so that you can gain something from them. And Jesus showed you that that's not love. But it's not an impossible ideal. And it's not a hopeless task. Because we can learn to rest in God's love. So how do you do that? So where do you start? So you've got to, we have to learn to put into conditions so that love will arise in us naturally grow. You plant a tree, you plant an apple tree, and what naturally comes from an apple tree? <laughs> what kind of a tree did you plant? So you plant, you allow God to plant the seed of love into your heart. Then naturally, love, patience, kindness will pop out. So we need to learn to position ourselves so we can learn to receive love before we start giving it. So that means you learn to be with Jesus. There is no other way. And it's through spiritual practices. 1 Timothy, oh, I forgot the, 1 Timothy something 15. <laughs> it teaches us that love emerges from Three things, a pure heart, unburdened from guilt, and sincere faith. One five, yes, I knew that. One Timothy one five. The ones there, it's just invisible ink. <laughs> so a pure heart is a pure heart is one that pursues and follows Jesus. We get our righteousness, we get our purity. Remember we discussed purity from being with Jesus. So when we pursue him, our hearts are pure. And many people are burdened by guilt. 
And I say this very carefully. So Leash and I head up the restoration ministries. And um, so she does counseling in a beautiful way. I'm not a counselor. I do inner healing and deliverance through freedom, what we call freedom sessions. But every, every, I mean, through both things, when there's forgiveness and when there's repentance, it seems to unblock people. They can hear God more, see him more, and then they can, it just unblocks lies. And when, that's when you become unburdened from guilt through forgiveness. There's no other way. And then sincere faith. As we learn in this process and the cycle, trusting in God's goodness for us. No matter what's happening, trusting in God's goodness. It's a choice. I choose to trust him. So our aim here isn't for perfection. This will keep telling you all the time. Our aim is not for perfection. It's for steady improvement. If you can, in a year's time, look back and go, huh, I'm seeing popping of more patience in me. I'm seeing responses that are becoming more kind. That's what you're looking for. So in our garage, it gets messy, I'm warning you. So in our garage, which we had built, I don't know how long, 16 years ago, um, we didn't realize, and a, uh, this bugs me, a structural engineer came and went, yay, it looks good. I'm like, oh, clearly it wasn't. Because we started noticing the, the lintel above the opening to the garage started like sagging. <laughs> so we're like, oh, okay, all right. Not being builders, we didn't really understand the implications or what they actually did. And um, it was a couple of weeks ago, so we started... When Dale moved out, we thought, oh, we'll just use this opportunity. He stayed in the garage, well, behind the garage in a little apartment there. So we thought, well, let's just use the opportunity to fill some cracks, kind of do some work on the place. And that turned into a very long saga. So what I'm, in that, we were like, oh, those cracks aren't so little, they actually go through the wall. All right, so we'll fix those. And then, we, we always knew the plastering on the wall was a little powdery, um, and it was a little frustrating, but then it got so bad that in, on the external wall, on the one side, they had to remove the whole of the, all the plaster and replaster it. So now you must note the dust. And that was over the time before the rain came. And then while they were removing all the plaster, the garage lintel thought, Pfft, let me just show you really what I'm made of. I went, vloop, and created all these cracks in the wall because all the bricks shifted down, so much so that the garage door motor fell out the wall. Luckily, Dylan, <laughs> he was like, I don't know what's going on here, and he tried to, and then, whoop, so he thought he broke it, but he, he didn't. He's, you're not that strong, D. So now we ended up with, okay, now we can't use the garage because it's not safe. The, the bracket to hold the garage motor is all bent and literally on the floor. Um, and now they tell us, because the builder, the guy, Aaron, kept looking at the plaster on the front wall going, Aish. 
Now, I didn't like that age. I was like, what does that mean? Because you've already removed all the plaster from the one side. Are you telling? And he's like, yeah, I think we're going to have to remove the, all the plaster from the front as well. I'm like, okay, we just have to do it. So they take it off, and we see what the true nature of this poor little lintel was doing. So what they ended up doing in a double wall, brick wall, was they put a single lintel, and then they used single reinforcing. It did not work. So then, then my garage became not just a dusty bowl. It became a whole... I took a photo. I should have put the photo up here, but it was like... You had the garage door and then nothing because they had to remove all the bricks. So now we had like this big deep hole. I, was, I said to Paul, we're starting something new. We're going to create like more light in the garage. Anyway, so then they had to buy a steel beam thingy, whatnot, whatever. Yeah, that Gary and I chose not to look when they picked that thing up and put it in the wall. And now we've got the straightest edged. It's, it's so amazing. So what's the point of this whole big long story? So when we start renovating our heart, when we're with Jesus, sometimes cracks will show. And we have to fix those cracks. And then sometimes he unearths our strongholds, some lies that are causing you to sag. No, I'm teasing. That causes, <laughs> because those lies are built on things that cannot withstand the weight of God's calling for you. And he needs to remove some things and replace and renovate stuff. And it gets messy. But it's okay. And it takes time. And sometimes it takes longer but you're not alone. So what was amazing about this guy, Aaron, was he said, I'm not a, a builder in that regard, but I'm going to bring in a specialist, and he's going to now come up with a solution and then f do it for you. And within the church, God has people who are specialists, like Leash, like I do in Freedom Sessions, where sometimes you need a team around you to help you to be able to put in a strong, a proper structure because of what God has called you to. And that's what being with Jesus sometimes does. And that's sometimes why we struggle being with him because it unearths stuff. But oh, he is so kind and so good to you. And then one day, you have a beautiful new structure that can... Take the cars and you won't ever worry whether that thing will fall again. I just want to find I'm so out of my notes. I don't know if I put it in here. But there's a verse in the New Testament and I'll find it where I can't remember. I'm not one of those people who can remember. In Mark 3, verse 13, it says this. Somewhere in the New Testament, on that side of the page, that's where it says. <laughs> Do you know in the olden days, we used to like flick through the, there it is. So you'd look on that, that's how my brain works. Where it says, God is kind to the unforgiven 
I think that he was an, an evil to the evil ones. Doesn't that blow your brain? God is kind to even those parts of our hearts that we are unforgiven towards and holding unforgiveness towards ourselves. So, that's where you start. How do we love people, though? Because ain't that a problem? <laughs> Guess what? We are not called to love everybody. Yes. It says love your neighbor, love your enemies, but you're not called to love every person, everyone. You are called, however, to love someone. And you, <laughs> yes, babe, I love you. I choose you. And you get to choose your someone. So this means, and what I mean by this is, we're not, I'm, we're not expecting, and God's not expecting you to walk out the door and start being polite and friendly to every person that you meet. Because that's going to be a good reflection of what Christians are. Don't you love it in church? Well, that's not loving. That's not what a Christian should or shouldn't do. And this is what we call our love experiment. Let's not start with the most difficult relationships in your life. Because the whole point, <laughs> there's somebody giggling in the back. The whole point is to become a loving person. Not to do. And how do you become and increase your capacity? Be with Jesus. And then you choose and you start with God, slowly, because you grow into it. You're in training. Having pleasant feelings about that person isn't your goal. <laughs> Remember, love is, is not necessarily an emotion, although it comes across. And I do feel like right now, Holy Spirit's popping in like a name into your heart. How do you start? Start by being grateful for them in prayer. Please don't be all running around going, hey, Anthony, you're my somebody, and dude, I'm going to show you so much love. doesn't work like that. You start in your prayer closet, you start in secret, and you start praying for them. And you ask God, how does he see that person? You're all very quiet. Because eventually, when you start praying for somebody and you start being grateful for them, guess what? You start, you may, as a result, you may start wanting to do something for them. And then that's when you can kick into asking God, what can I do for that person? Again, please don't be running around and telling people, I am baking you this cake because God told me that now I must love you because I've been praying for you. That looks and sounds a lot like manipulation. But you can bake Gary a lemon meringue. <laughs> he's not, <laughs> he's open to any kind of manipulation. <laughs> Ask God what you can do to serve them in a way that they will feel love, where you can lighten their load, where you can 
love them a little bit, just through a small action. Because guess what? It's not about you. It's about them and their well-being. Because as you start praying for them and you start becoming grateful for who they are and you start to see the good in them, and then maybe for some of you, you need to be reminded of some good memories, and then you start to get to know them because you're watching, you're caring for them in prayer, and then you start asking God, how can I help or serve or love this person in a small way? Hopefully it becomes a good thing for them. So remember, our aim is to become a more loving person and grow in our capacity, not to be seen as a loving person. Finally, this is my favorite one. Love means you are able to say no. It feels like a ta-da! Because in the church... And I know some people have said to us that they've been in ministry where they've actually thought that they weren't ever allowed to say no. Sometimes no is the most loving thing you can say to a person. You think of your, like for those who have kids, you think of your kids. Is it really good that you, <laughs> there's that movie that, I think it's Say Yes Day or something like that with, yeah, where the parents for a day like, just no matter what the kid asked, they would say yes. And I understand the concept behind that. But as parents, we know that saying yes to our kids for every single thing that they want and think they need, sorry guys, is actually some of it's not good for them. Why? Because effective, loving, emotional, it requires an emotional, spiritual maturity. A child and people who are struggling won't know what's good for them and think they need something. Sometimes, if somebody's asking you to lie for you, the best thing you can do is to say no. We listened to a story of a couple on Friday night where this guy's lost so many jobs because of his integrity. And he's going, I can't do this job because I become complicit and I'm going to say no. I have never met a more courageous person. It was his way of loving himself, loving his family, of saying no to these companies who wanted him to do whatever the blah, blah they were doing. It was all accounting stuff. That's why I went blah, blah. I didn't understand a word. <laughs> Sometimes... We need to rest in God's love first. And it might be a season because you're in the healing, working on your heart, soul, wounds process, that you need to just rest first before you start. Because we are called to do, but it's out of that place of being, not the other way around. And we get this amazing sufficiency and abundance of life that starts welling up deep inside of us. Our faith keeps on growing and expanding. We keep laying down, laying aside, putting to death 
and our confidence in God keeps growing so we can lay down more stuff. And our being with Jesus starts becoming more life-giving. We start singing more. <laughs> our faith increases. Death to self happens. And we start to become these loving people who naturally, with healthy boundaries, are able to love those around them in an incredible way. And guess what? We'll change the world that way. So I want to read Psalm 23, just as this section. Close your eyes. Just in the context of what I've speak, spoken of today, the comfort of your love takes away my fear. I'll never be lonely for you are near. You've become my delicious feast, even when my enemies dare fight. You anoint me with the fragrance of your Holy Spirit. You give me all I can drink of you until my heart overflows. So why would I fear the future? For your goodness and love pursue me all the days of my life. I want to read this prayer that Dallas Willard, I've taken out some things, it's a little long, but just keep your eyes closed, and listen to these words, and where your heart resonates more, gracious Lord, help us to see and understand, that is with the eyes of faith, and the mind you've given us, your magnificent, glorious self-sufficient being and the greatness of your kingdom into which we are invited. May we grasp the deep significance of the words in him we live and move and have our being. And may we know that that is the safest of places. In you, there is simply no lack. Open our our eyes to the high privilege of being created in your image. And Father God, you have taught us so clearly that faith, which is trust, is so essential to life without lack. We confess that while we believe in you, we need to believe more fully, more deeply, more constantly. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection he showed us that you are completely and utterly trustworthy. Even in the shadow of death, there is nothing to fear, for you are with us. So bring us to a place of peace where we no longer feel a need to defend ourselves or to worry about what, who's going to take care of us or to be recognized or to get our way to make things turn out right. Lord Jesus, free us from the knowledge that because you are with us, working in our lives, that we have everything we need. And now, with the truth of who you are, deeply engraved in our hearts, give us the confidence and power to love all those who are in our lives, just as we are being loved by you freely, 
fully, joyfully. Let your Holy Spirit move in our minds and our hearts so we believe ever more fully that because you are all sufficient and you are our shepherd, that we shall never want. And we ask this all because we would have it no other way.